You may remember that we paused our study the last time we were speaking on the topic of looking for unity out of Psalm 133. And then we stated that we would return to the particular points that we were looking at on that Sunday. So this afternoon, I bring you to this second treatment of the subtitle of What Is It Like? Looking for Unity, What Is It Like? Now, this psalm begins with a powerful interjection. The psalmist calls our attention to view something, and he does so because what has captured his heart is something very unusual. And he, being aware of that, wants to share that blessing with those who can appreciate such things. But understanding that it is an unusual visage, an unusual set of affairs, something that perhaps would not be appreciated for what indeed it actually is, it is useful for us to ask, what is it like? And indeed, the psalmist himself, inspired by the Holy Spirit, engages in that very exercise himself. You will notice with me in the second and third verses of Psalm 133, that is exactly what is taking place. We are given two similes. Why? Because of the fact that it being so uncommon and not readily appreciated, it necessitates some sort of analogy along different lines that one is more familiar with by which to draw one's heart into an appreciation of the spiritual principles that are involved in beautiful, biblical, brotherly unity. And so this topic again of looking into unity does indeed need to deal with the question of what is it like so that we can be sure that what we think is unity is exactly or is indeed the unity of Psalm 133. Now, before we get to looking at those two similes, I want to finish up from where we were last time we spoke from this passage, at which point, as I already stated, we placed a pause in the interest of time and in the interest of not overfilling our baskets and to allow us all to have time to digest what the Spirit of the Lord was saying to us. And I will add parenthetically that I hope that you do take advantage of these spaces of time between one message and the next, and that you avail yourself of the teachings from notes, from recollection, or from indeed the recordings themselves, which are available, as you know, on podcasts. As I am wont to point out on various occasions, something that I think is very practical and very relevant to the church of Jesus Christ. It is very much at the core of all that we do. So would to God this observation would not escape our attention. I'm sure whenever Paul wrote his epistle to the Romans, I'm sure whenever the author to the Hebrews penned that particular general epistle, either of those two anointed men were not thinking that the recipients would be able to process its message in one hearing. Whether or not they were able to even read through the epistle in its entirety, either of those epistles in its entirety, in one reading, it is certainly the case that given the concentrated nature of what God was saying to their hearts, 
that they would necessarily have to ponder the things that God is speaking to them so that the Lord will give them understanding in all things. And so we always have a choice, we who minister the Word of God. We can lean toward the milk, if you will, or we can lean toward a very gradual, a very lengthened presentation of spiritual truths by which we sort of take the time to make sure that every single idea and every single thought is explained at the most elementary level, or we can pack more in to whether it's the space of a letter or the space of the hour or the space of a particular teaching, we can pack more in and we do so because there's so much that God wants to speak to our lives about and we gather one in seven, at least in terms of a sort of normal cycle of ministry and then you have the remainder of the week to either read the book of Romans or the epistle to the Hebrews or to go back and listen to these studies. I assure you there's an awful lot that is concentrated into these teachings that requires some processing in your spirit. And so I hope that you will do that. Today will be no exception. That is to say that we aren't on some project of galloping through this psalm and or making these messages so concentrated with biblical thought that your minds are spinning or pressured or something in that direction. At the same time, we want to work through the material and give you something that is fully prepared that then you take home and you unpack to fully enter into what the Lord is saying. So with that admonition, that encouragement, let's return to our study. Before I say we get to the two similes, let's remember that we have two qualities that describe beautiful biblical unity. That's what we were thinking about last time we were speaking on this topic. The psalmist says that the unity that he is seeing, that has captured his, his attention, is good and it is pleasant. And we were stressing the fact that the good is stage one. And you have to get to stage one. You have to take the first step in this psalm of ascension, this, this psalm of rising higher toward the worship of God, toward entering into God's presence. So, dear brothers and sisters, you have to first understand and enter into the good before you can get to the pleasant. With respect to the things of God, indeed, with respect to God's universe, but let's concentrate our minds for the moment on the specific task of understanding God's Word and incorporating it into our life and into our churches. Ethics must come before aesthetics. The good must come before the pleasant. The moral must precede the moving. By moving, I mean that beauty, that emotional experience that captures the heart and moves the spirit. Remember how the psalmist speaks of this unity. It is first good, and then it is pleasant. And we want to emphasize this, dear brothers and sisters, because if we allow ourselves to skip past the moral 
and simply give our attention to the moving, then we run the risk of substituting the truly biblical moving visage that the psalmist is engaged with when he says, behold, this picture that has so captured my heart, we run the risk of substituting the true godly beauty of things for something that is rather seductive. If you bypass the moral and you allow the moving to do something to your spirit, then you are in the domain or in the region of seduction. Good words and fair speeches can get you to a form of unity, but the Bible calls this the religion of the great whore. And that religion, as expressed to us in Revelation chapter 17, is indeed a religion that can make the claim of large numbers within its attendance. For the language that the great horse sits upon many waters is a metaphor that means that many peoples are a part of this religious identity, this religious process, this religious expression. And so how could it be that there would be this entity that is very much manifest throughout the world The waters being the people, many, many peoples belong to this entity. And yet somehow we understand that God necessarily has to label it the great whore. And I'm saying to you that don't you hear the overtones of seduction, that they bypassed the moral and just went to the moving. And there were various aspects of this religious configuration that captured their emotions, that captured some sort of baser drive within their spirits. And they neglected the ethics of God's Word. They neglected the standards of God's Word. They neglected the good and opted for what they felt was the pleasant. But again, if you don't follow the biblical method, then you might be allowing your heart to be moved into the direction of seduction. When you're just looking for the beautiful, it can be a seducing move that is actually occurring within your heart. Now, I must remind you, though it would seem to be obvious with such strident terminology as is given to this religious entity, it being called the great whore, or in some translations, the great harlot or the great prostitute, I remind you that the 17th chapter introduces to us the judgment of this entity. And I also remind you that there is a mystery to this entity, which is to say it isn't something that everyone is discerning. It isn't something that is patently obvious. Once again, I'm stressing here, if you bypass the moral and you simply allow your heart to focus on the moving, that which moves your heart through music or through numbers or through methodologies, then you might be in the domain of seduction. You might be in the domain of that which will ultimately constitute the great whore, that mysterious working of your life where you are equating a certain tug to your mind and to your vision and to your senses with the will of God, but you would only get there if you bypass the standards of God's word, the good of the teaching of the apostles. And so this is why it is called Mystery Babylon the Great, the mother of all false religion. Dear brothers and sisters, 
there is a spiritual principle that we must give attention to. And it is that the heart must precede the eyes. Because beauty is in the heart of the beholder. You say, you have that wrong, Brother William. The quotation is, beauty is in the eyes of the beholder. But Jesus makes it clear to us that what we're looking out of our eyes at, whether we're seeing adultery or whether we're seeing covetousness, out of the heart proceeds these interests and so on. And so we recognize that if it is the case that beauty is, as it were, in the eyes of the beholder, spiritually speaking, the heart must first be transformed by the moral work of God's Word before we will gain the eye to behold the true beauty of God's design. And I direct you to the last teaching in this series, Looking for Unity, in which we stress that particular idea at some length. And we make the case that we don't naturally have the training within our spirit to appreciate the lines and the ordination and the program of Almighty God. So we don't get His artistry. We don't get His perspectives. We don't get what He's doing on the canvas of life because we don't have within us the ability to take in the beauty that that God sees because our hearts need to be regenerated and trained and instructed out of its chaos and its love of the confused and the broken. We need to be trained. Our hearts need to be transformed. We need to come to love the lines of God. We need to love morality, brothers and sisters, not as a way of gaining salvation, but as a way of entering into the appreciation of God's beauty now that we are regenerated and being transformed by the Spirit of God. Now, in keeping with this thought, I must stress something to you. And this is absolutely critical within this topic. The topic is we're looking for unity. And I must tell you that exclusivity comes before inclusivity. That is to say, once again, ethics comes before aesthetics. That is to say, once again, the moral comes before the moving. With respect, dear brothers and sisters, to biblical unity in this age, in this experience and pilgrimage, on this side of the veil, exclusivity must come before inclusivity. Listen indeed to the language itself. It says, Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren. Whether you fully appreciate what's implied there at this moment or not, we will do our best to manifest the implications of that statement, that word. But I tell you at the outset that that is a statement of exclusivity. Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren. First, there is an exclusive, a called out people to dwell together in unity. Then you get to the inclusivity. You have a certain select entity that we desire to see function together in love and in harmony and in agreement in indeed unity. But it's first brethren. Dwelling together in unity. Dear brothers and sisters, it is certainly the case that 
when you get to the vision, when you get to the place of unity, your heart rises and it is able to simply embrace the beautiful without any other kind of reflection. When you're in the middle of that which is truly unified under God, then you can relax, as it were, all other aspects of how you're living out life and you can just enter into the aesthetics and into the beauty and you can say, this is just beautiful. But you have to recognize that this passage teaches in the Bible itself emphasizes that you get to that illegitimately. You run the risk of finding yourself in the midst of the great whore if you don't first practice proper biblical exclusivity before you just allow your heart to embrace the inclusivity and the unity, morality, or an understanding of exclusivity must come before inclusivity because that sets the proper conditions for the real thing. I'll use Peter as a metaphor for the people of God. For indeed, that which is applicable to one individual Christian by extension, is applicable to the people of God at large. And so with respect to this point, that exclusivity comes before inclusivity, reflect on the person Peter, reflect on how Jesus worked in the life of Peter, and think of the remark that was stated to Peter. Jesus effectively said to him, you must First, be sifted before you will be in a place to be used of God to strengthen your brethren. When he told Peter that Satan has desired to have you, Jesus did not say that I'm going to stand in the way of that experience. He said, I'm going to pray for you that your faith would be matured. I'm going to pray for you that when Satan sifts you like wheat is sifted, that the chaff will be taken away. For in the sovereign ordinations of Almighty and all-wise God, He utilizes even the base designs of wicked men and wicked spirits by which to bring about a proper sifting of our various lives and actually within the churches at large so that ultimately there can be something that is a strengthening of the brethren that one man, whether it be Peter or Paul, or Apollos, and then perhaps two men, a Barnabas and a Silas, or a Timothy and a Titus, and then three men, and four men, and sisters as well, that as they are sifted out from false religion, sifted out of their false traditions, sifted out of their impurities, and brought into, through that change that their lives are going through, brought into the standards of God's Word, for that's exactly what was going on in Peter's life. Then, when that chaff falls off of them, then they are in a place to strengthen their brethren. So you see that what happens in Peter's life is there is, there is an excluding of the things in his life which would not make for pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father before Peter is used to strengthen the churches. The Puritan Richard Sibbs, not precisely on this point taken out of Luke 22 that I just referred to related to Peter, but on a different passage, in this case, 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 31, 
which states, if we would judge ourselves, we should not be judged. But he makes a statement about sifting that is applicable to this idea. And he wrote the following. Sibs says, Now what is this sifting and searching of heart, but a searching of all the corners of the soul by the light of God's Word and Spirit? A searching of all the corners of the heart. This requires much pains. Naturally, we are loath to take pains with our own souls, though indeed this be a preventing pain to shun a worse misery hereafter. There is nothing gotten by favoring ourselves, and I add, from the experience of that sifting process. Oh, dear brothers and sisters, these messages are being taught because I myself long to see the vision of an emerging biblical unity. And so I agree with all those who have as an objective within their hearts to see that unity and to place their eyes upon it. But I am saying to you that we cannot bypass the sifting process that must precede the establishing of the strengthening of the brethren. We cannot shun this search in every corner of our churches, in every corner of our souls, by which the Word of God has come to bring a light and to search out the leaven of that which is against God, lest we join hand in hand in so-called unity, but later discover that there's a judgment coming against the great whore of a collective false religion. And so, dear brothers and sisters, I'm saying to you, to what extent in your journey and in your pursuit of biblical unity where you're in a pilgrimage and you're looking for unity, you're looking for hopeful, you're looking for faithful to be your fellow pilgrims on this path to the celestial city and you long to find unity here and there. I say to you, you cannot bypass the recognition that first our hearts have to be sifted. Our churches have to be appropriately sifted. In other words, we need to allow the Word of God to be established and its standard to be in operation so that our unity is a beautiful, biblical, brotherly unity. This has always been an important point. One needs only to reflect upon the biblical record to recognize how true that remark is. One need only think of the unity that was evident in Genesis 6 before the floods drowned them all. One need only to think about the unity that was evident in Genesis chapter 11 before God dispersed them all. And sundry other examples are also given to us within the biblical record. But I would suggest to you, relative to the trajectory of time within which we ourselves find our own lives, which is to say, on the other side of some of the legitimate spiritual influences and changings and siftings that God in His mercy has allowed to come within that which is labeled Christendom, most especially post the movement that entered in at the Reformation. I'm saying to you, brothers and sisters, that in more modern times, this tendency toward a seductive unity is rather strong. Now, these studies are certainly in the interest and in the longing and in the 
promotion of unity. And these studies will argue, as they already have and will continue to argue, that this is a spiritual work that is a delicate and is a work that takes great wisdom and adjustment and humility. So I am not arguing that in any of us that we can just dismiss the call and the objective of unity by just stating that, well, we're not there yet because people don't obey God's word as they ought to, and so we don't find unity, so we just wipe our hands and say, well, we'll just carry on. I'm trying to state to you, brothers and sisters, that we should have our hearts on that objective. We should long for it. We should know that that's where the blessing is, and absent the valuing of real unity and understanding how God will bring it about, we may be hindering ourselves from experiencing more of God. But while we go to pursue that, and while I advocate, and these studies are intended to stir your hearts up in that direction, we must warn you against bypassing the moral and going just to the moving and making these messages only moving. Because when you bypass the moral and just go into the moving, that's in the direction of seduction. And so I'm bringing to your attention a certain seductive tune that has been played in relatively current times. I point you to a particular idea by which to manifest this mystery of iniquity that is very seductive. And this particular idea flows from Schleiermacher through Richel. It's also in the direction, or it has its influences from Feuerbach and F.C. Bauer and David Strauss. But ultimately, it comes to particular verbiage in the writings of Adolf von Harnack. In his 1901 volume, What is Christianity?, which is very much in the same direction of Ludwig Feuerbach's 1841 volume, The Essence of Christianity, von Harnack presents the phrase, the fatherhood of God and the brotherhood of man. And I present to you the following quotations out of that work that express the idea that I'm directing your hearts to at this moment. They're found in a section that has the title... God the Father and the infinite value of the human soul. And von Harnack writes the following. To our modern way of thinking and feeling, Christ's message appears in the clearest and most direct light when grasped in connection with the idea of God the Father and the infinite value of the human soul. Shortly thereafter, he adds... There is nothing in the Gospels that tells us more certainly what the Gospel is and what sort of disposition and temper it produces than the Lord's Prayer. It, that is the Lord's Prayer, shows the Gospel to be the fatherhood of God applied to the whole of life, to be an inner union with God's will and God's kingdom and a joyous certainty of the possession of eternal blessings and protection from evil. His language may not connect directly with your minds 
in the hearing of these quotations, or perhaps these quotations do connect with you, but I will make the comment that what you're hearing here is the gelling together, as it were, of a particular influence that is now rife within evangelicalism and Christendom at large that can be adequately captured by the notion of the fatherhood of God and the brotherhood of man. And you might be hearing within that kind of language something in the direction of a unity that is based on some sort of notion, some sort of construct, some sort of sentimental idea that is seductive but yet persuasive and is the basis of a lot that describes itself as a proper unity in the eyes of God. And what Schleiermacher and Richel and Feuerbach and Strauss and von Harnack, what these men are arguing, and they are highly influential in the theological thinking of all that is out there, they are basically saying we need to boil Christianity down to its essence. What is Christianity at its core? And let us unify around that. And Harnack is, is arguing here, when we think about the Lord's Prayer, what's the first thing we hear? Our Father. And that is what we should all focus on, that God is revealing Himself as our Father. And this Father has come to bring redemption and to bring joy and peace and happiness to men. And the sooner we recognize that this is the core, and these men, of course, go on to describe or to argue that Paul has, has corrupted the simplicity that is the essence of Jesus Christ. Indeed, when you get Bultmann and his project into play, they argue that the Gospels themselves have stated things about Jesus that he himself never believed, never thought. And the core of Jesus' message, who, by the way, according to these men, is not the divine Son of God. He is a man that came into God consciousness at a higher level than most other individuals. And we are to learn from him that God is up there reaching out his hands to welcome all of humanity. And the objective of religion is to appreciate God as Father and each one beside us as our brother or our sister and unify in this family. And this is the beautiful unity that we should have as our objective. And I'm suggesting to you that that project in itself, that very project, is very descriptive of a lot of religion that goes under the category of Christianity. But even when it isn't as overt as that, that, uh, you know, nondescript objective of just emphasizing the fatherhood of God and the brotherhood of men, there are varying degrees of this kind of idea that the proper way to unity is to whittle down the Bible into a few primary points and simply gather around that and we'll call that unity. And I'm saying that is a different project than what the apostles taught and what the reformers taught and what is healthy and what is good. It bypasses the moral and goes to the sentimental, goes to the moving. It's a form of seduction that is leading people into a religion that the Bible describes as the religion of the great whore.
In this same volume, Harnack, Harnack writes the following, But the course which history has taken has surely opened up a wide province in which the Christian sense of brotherhood must give practical proof of itself quite otherwise than it knew how or was able to do in the earlier centuries, in the centuries of the Reformation, in the centuries of, let's say, the apostolic period, in the centuries even prior to Jesus' incarnation, in the centuries that Elijah and Moses and, uh, and uh, Jeremiah lived within. Harnack says, I mean the social province. Here a tremendous task confronts us. And in the measure in which we accomplish it, shall we be able to answer with a better heart the deepest of all questions, the question of the meaning of life. There is a very strong message within Christendom, dear brothers and sisters, that is pushing social concerns, that is pushing a certain now, it comes in the form of a certain wokeness to social sensitivities and the argument that we should reduce the biblical distinctives down to a mere minimum in order to broaden the social platform within which more and more people can find their place within the church of Jesus Christ. And when we do this, we will be manifesting to more and more people the beautiful ideas, the, the beautiful idea of the fatherhood of God. When we do this and we welcome them into our churches, we will be manifesting the beautiful idea of the brotherhood of man or men. And when we begin to fill our churches more and more and they begin to bust at the seams, then we can look out on this scene and we can say, behold, how good and how pleasant it is to have this place where all are saying in their various states of spiritual lifestyles that God is their father and everyone is their brother and whatever aspects of our Christian experience that we have or don't have it hardly matters because the beautiful picture of this unity is enough to satisfy the soul. Harnack says gentlemen it is religion the love of God and neighbor which gives life a meaning Knowledge cannot do it. I hope you hear in that sentence the proof of what I'm saying, that this is seductive. Within a certain context and from a certain direction, there's a certain truth to that remark. Pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is to visit the poor and the widows, but it's also to keep yourself unspotted from the world. And it is true that knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. But all of this emphasis and all of this call of all of these men to unity are men that deny the inspiration of Scripture, that deny the virgin birth, that deny the resurrection, that deny the deity of Jesus Christ. And that's a fact. And so, so much which aligns itself within this version of unity also denies very many important things in the Word of God and substitutes their own traditions in the place of God's Word. And they make the Word of God of none effect. I give you this last quotation from Adolf von Harnack. He says, The gospel, as Jesus proclaimed it, has to do with the Father only and not with the Son. 
I would like to think that at that moment, if you're a regenerated Christian, you are no longer captured by the smooth lips and the batting, seductive eyes of this harlot, but you're seeing beneath this seductive entity the steps down to hell. An Australian minister by the name of E.L. Williams in a pamphlet written in 1962 dealing with the topic of the fatherhood of God and the brotherhood of man and critiquing it and speaking about its unbiblicalness had the following to say and think of the last quotation I just gave you from Harnack where he said that the gospel as Jesus proclaimed it has to do with the Father only and not with the Son. E.L. Williams says, The privilege and responsibility of unlimited and limited brotherhood are reflected in the Pauline injunction, let us do good to all men and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Now I hope to God, dear brothers and sisters, that these thoughts reach your spirits And if they don't fully register in your minds and hearts, then again, I encourage you to re-listen to this study and to reflect and get these truths down in your soul so that your roots go deep, so that you can stand in times of seductive winds that would draw you into a false unity that will only ultimately be judged of God. Because what our author is pointing out is that the Bible manifests... That while there is a certain sense when, within which God is, we might say, the father of all, if we want to use that extremely loosely and therefore um, irresponsibly, but nonetheless, if you want to get in that direction at some level, certainly he is the creator of all men. And so since mankind is made in God's image, whomever the man or woman is, they're not Within the animal kingdom, they're outside of the animal kingdom. They alone had the breath of life breathe into their nostrils. And so in that sense, they all do fit under that special work of God. But listen to the language of Galatians 6 and verse 10 again, as our author states when he makes a distinction between the unlimited brotherhood and the limited brotherhood. The unlimited brotherhood is captured by the idea that we should do good to all men. Yes, with respect to this notion, this, 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 uh, this plea, this, this emotional, um, polemic trying to draw your hearts to lessen the distinctives of God's word in order to broaden the sphere within which unity can take place. Oh, brothers and sisters, I'm trying to say to you that, yes, we should do good to all men. If you want to use the general idea of the fatherhood of God and the brotherhood of men, it's not a well-chosen phrase, but I'm trying to say if you're going to have any sort of application within the ballpark of that notion, then that's where you would place that thought, that we are to do good to all men because they are created in God's image. They are subjects of God's grace. They may be among the elect. We are to suffer all things for the elect's sake. And in that sense, yes, 
we should strive not to be unnecessarily divided, as Paul says in Romans 12, if it be possible, as much as lieth in you, live peaceably with all men. And we should manifest that type of disposition in the public square. Within other religious situations, we should recognize, as our dear brother shared today in sharing with a Mormon, he spoke about how he engaged with them in a respectful, humble, and cordial manner. And hallelujah, that that is indeed what we are called upon to do. But he nonetheless spoke truth to their lives and sought to exclude them from that Mormon affiliation and draw them into the only sphere within which real brotherly unity could take place. Because Galatians 6 and verse 10 goes on to say that there is a special category of those that are within the household of faith. Do good to all men, but especially to those that are of the household of faith. In Psalm 133, dear brothers and sisters, is speaking about the household of faith. It's already designated a particular portion without, out of the large lump of human existence. It says, behold, how good and how pleasant it is for brethren, the ecclesia, they that are called out of the public populace and into the purpose of God. They are the called, they are the elect. Behold how good and how pleasant it is for the unity that manifests itself within the household of faith. And what distinguishes they that are in the household of faith from the large lump of human existence? Recall that Harnack, Harnack, says that the gospel has only to do with the Father and not with the Son. But listen to this statement from the Lutheran Missouri Synod that shows that that is deep heretical error. Since the fall, no man can believe in the quote-unquote fatherhood of God except he believe in the eternal Son of God who became man and reconciled us to God by his vicarious satisfaction. And he gives us, among the many texts that one could give, 1 John 2, 23 and John 14, 6. You remember John 6, 44. Jesus says, No man can come unto me except the Father which sent me draw him, and I will raise him up in the last day. You have to be given power to become a son of God. A power has to work in you, a regenerating power to make you of the household of faith. And that is founded upon the vicarious satisfaction of Jesus' work on behalf of the elect. And none of those men that I've mentioned believe in the atonement as the scriptures teach it. And yet their language for unity has been very influential in the configuring of the modern culture. And it doesn't make any difference whether you are thinking of that culture in its religious overtones or its secular overtones. A Dutch writer with the last name of Herink agrees with the sentiment of the Missouri Synod in opposition to the nondescript general simply moving, quote-unquote, seductive language of the fatherhood of God and the brotherhood of men. And he states the following, 
Take away soteriology from your system of doctrine and the fatherhood of God becomes a sham and the brotherhood of man a cruel mockery. Theologians who tremble at the word of God and know the fullness of God's grace revealed in Christ will insist upon it that the doctrine of God's fatherhood ought to be intimately connected with soteriology. It is Christ who leads us to the Father and unites us in one happy family through faith in His name. Let us covet the truth, not its caricature. And so you see with me, this language and this work that is sifting within religion and within, within the minds and within the ministries that are out there. First, Peter, first the church must be sifted before we can truly strengthen the brethren and see a genuine unity emerge that we can rejoice over and say, behold, how good and how pleasant this is. Otherwise, we just land in the sentimental space of human emotion as represented for an example in the poems of a certain Warren James Maston. I have in my library a volume entitled Poems of Brotherhood. The Fatherhood of God and the Brotherhood of Man is its subtitle. I'm not going to read to you several selections out of this volume, many of which Within a proper context, they're quite edifying. But within the milieu that we are describing here, they are seductive. And that is my point. But on the front leaf of this volume, Mastin quotes a portion from another poet, the American Quaker John Greenleaf Whittier. And the poem he quotes from is generally known under the title of O Brother Man. I'm going to give you the two previous lines within this poem and then the last two, which are the ones that Mastin quotes within the front piece of this entire volume entitled Poems on Brotherhood. And again, remind, I want to remind you that all of this is religious. All of this is to inform you and to present to you and to acquaint you with the influences and the feelings and the counter projects that are out there and very persuasive and undergird much that is discovered within Christendom today. And so the poem goes, this, that is John Greenleaf Whittier's poem, O brother man, fold to thy heart thy brother, where pity dwells, the peace of God is there. To worship rightly, is to love each other, each smile a hymn, each kindly deed a prayer. What I hope registers in your mind is not a caustic rejection of those poetic words, not a haughty dismissiveness just stating, ah, what garbage! It's not garbage at all. It's quite beautiful, actually. But within the context that this argument and this influence is working, it is seductive toward becoming a part of the great whore as opposed to becoming a part of the marriage company of the Lamb, and that is to say, becoming a part of that which is true biblical unity. For one needs more than simply the idea of being folded into the heart of your brother. 
One needs more than just pity. One needs more than just peace. One needs more in the pursuit of true worship than to simply love each other and have the thought that each smile is a hymn, each kindly deed is a prayer. All one needs to do is to pull your head out of that volume of poems, take your brain, as J. Gresham Machen had to do, and he was no slouch of a thinker. You may not know his story, but I'm saying to you that the old Princeton and then later founder of Westminster Theological Seminary, this stalwart, ultimately, of Reformed and biblical thought, J. Gresham Machen, once upon a time went to study in Germany under some of these men and certainly these influences, and he was quite taken and seduced and drawn into this way of thinking about God and his fellow man. I assure you, I'm mocking none of this. I take all of this seriously. This is why I'm taking the time to present these ideas to you. Because whether you recognize it or not, these ideas are the influences and the streams, however poisoned they might be at their fount, that flow in the thought of much theology and much churchianity and ecclesiology of, ecclesiology of our time. Well, as I was saying, all one needs to do is to take your head out of those books and out of these men's lectures and out of this emotional feeling, which is fine. There's nothing wrong with emotions, but did you, did you bypass the moral and just go into the moving? Well, she really moves me. Oh, he really moves me. But is it moral? Oh, who cares about moral? Let's get to the moving. God cares about the moral. He doesn't think anything is beautiful that's just moving. If it isn't drawn with the lines of morality and divine, divine design. Take your head out of those volumes and bring it to one particular text. Say, for example, Exodus 23 and verse 2, Thou shalt not follow a multitude to do evil. That should be sufficient. Dear brothers and sisters, the churches of Jesus Christ must learn to choose the good before they boast of the beautiful. Indeed, inclusivity is the beautiful. I think about our own experience, this Upper Room Christian Assembly, as some of you who have been members of this work for many years will recognize, we have had our ups and downs with respect to who have attended these meetings. But one thing that I think under God's direction and blessing as we allow His Lordship to direct our lives, one thing that I think is emerging and I pray and hope it continues to go apace toward what I'm about to state, what is emerging is a genuine biblical unity. And these teachings, I hope, promote that all the more. And it will be the power of God's Word in your hearts that will do that. Not just me bringing up the topic, but as we honor God's Word and preach God's Word, and not just emotional platitudes and sentimental strategies on this topic, then God will bring those roots down deep and He will produce the foundation of a true biblical unity. And I invite all of you who hear me to join this project. I believe with all my spirit that 
it doesn't require very many to truly get the roots that would produce an intertwining unity among true vines of the Lord Jesus Christ that would be mighty and strong and even be able to withstand the uh, the, the assaults of the little foxes that would break down this unity and destroy the vine because we're learning these principles. And as I've said earlier, we are not talking about an overemphasis on every I and every T being dotted and crossed exactly the same. And unless that is the situation, we have no right to think about unity or to talk about unity. No, we've already said some things about that. And as the Lord Lord allows, we'll have more to say about how does this all flow together? That will be as the Lord allows another subtitle to these teachings in due time. How does this all flow together? Because the Bible says there's something that happens within which this flows. It flows like the anointing down from Aaron's head, down to his beard, down to the skirts of his garment. It flows like the dew of Hermon down from those lofty heights to the very courts of Jerusalem. There are conditions within which this thing flows. And there's a fluidity to this that cannot be engineered through just um, dogmatism. But at the same time, you cannot reject the good and the exclusive and just focus on the inclusive and the fatherhood of God and the brotherhood of man and then call it beautiful. It is not beautiful in God's eyes. And what is emerging in this critical race theory and all of this alignment of forces that is arguing in their perverse fashion for some state of unity, that it would seem to me that the least discerning human person could tell it is a sinister unity, but alas, very few can, well, I shouldn't say very, a discernible Number are not either able to discern how false this unity is or they lack the courage to stand against it. And God is not going to congratulate you or me if we're like the Ephesians. We simply exercise ourselves in pointing out everything that is false. You're not an apostle. That's not unity. That isn't right. But we don't have our heart on the love that God wants to see nonetheless growing in the midst of this darkness. He wants to show Satan that in this confusion, in this lawlessness, I will have a people that will preserve love in their hearts and they will actually grow and their love will be purified in these fires and they will learn how to be unified and they will drop the petty differences and they will have a true biblical unity that will be a force and a power within all of this evil. And that's what we're looking for. And so I completely agree that inclusivity is the beautiful. I don't think anyone's going to tell me that the presence of hell is the beautiful. It may be the necessary. In the entire configuration of God's eternal plan, it may have a beautiful spot, but it's the dark backdrop out of which the beauties of heaven finds its relief and its presence and its powerful manifestation. It is not the beautiful. That which is separated from the mass of humanity is not ultimately the beautiful. So indeed, inclusivity 
what God is bringing us all toward is oneness in Christ and oneness in heaven and unity without any divisions for eternity. That is the beautiful. But the moral, the exclusive, the recognition that given the fact of sin and fallenness, there must be a work of sifting. That understanding ensures that the beauty that we have our eyes on is not that vain beauty that the Bible warns us against. Remember the very critical language of Jesus given to us in Matthew 15. This people, not one person, who knows how, how many comprise that group that he states as being a people. It could be five, it could be ten, it could be a hundred, it could be a thousand. The point is, it doesn't matter how, how many it is. It's not a matter of quantity, it's a matter of quality. This people draw nigh unto me with their mouth. They honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. They are giving me religious lip service. They are giving lip service to my name and to my project. Their heart is not invested in it. And it's manifest by the fact that they say, Lord, Lord, but they don't do the things that I tell them in my word to do. And Jesus says that beauty, that collection of people, that drawing nigh, that religious enclave, when the pilgrims are making their way to Sunday church and whatever other situation, this people are drawing nigh to God within. He says that beauty is vain. They may be worshiping me. Their worship may be moving. But that beauty is vain because they substitute the doctrines and the commandments of men for the Word of God. I think I'll conclude our study this afternoon and we will leave to next time as the Lord allows to get into the similes. We will begin, Lord willing, next time to take up the two similes of verse 2 and verse 3. But I will end with a quotation from Hulrich Zwingli, the Swiss reformer, who very truthfully was involved in a project that was arguing for beautiful biblical unity to emerge out of the context of the unity of the great whore, known as Middle Age, the Roman Catholicism of the Middle Ages. And any who are acquainted with the history of those times and the energies and the thinking and the efforts of those times appreciate the topic that I'm preaching on now. This desire to look for unity, but to recognize that you can't bypass the moral. You can't just quickly get to the, the inclusive. You have to first deal with God's call through His Word to a people who will come under His Lordship, indeed, who will first be regenerated by His Son and be made truly a part of the family of God. It's amazing in the pages of church history to see how many times various men had to be risen up, had to be raised up to preach of all things regeneration as a necessary act of God within the church membership. Do you understand what I'm saying? Why? it might stun you to learn that one of Jonathan Edwards, for example, just take him as an example, and, you know, the tenants, Wilbert and Gilbert Tennant and, and others of that time, one of their 
primary challenges was to convince the churches of New England of what they knew, and that is that their ministry were not even regenerated. The ministry that is officiating in these churches on a weekly basis, they're not even saved. And yet, church goes on from week to week to week, and they come from their homes, and they walk down the streets, and they get in their whatever, their carts, their buggies, they ride their horses, and they all gather. Edwards was not a killjoy. He was looking for beautiful biblical unity and realized that first they have to be called out to be made brethren before we can say, oh, now that's beautiful. This emerging fellowship in the gospel within this context, this culture, this city, this town, this religious configuration where you have a religious idea for everything under the sun like they did in Athens, but we have come here to tell you about the gods you're not following and that you need to leave all these idols behind. And if any will hearken to that message and begin to attend and gather within that type of flock, then we can say, behold, how good and how pleasant it is to see brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ dwelling together in unity. Well, among the many things that we could relate to you from the history of the Reformation, I'll simply close with these remarks from Zwingli. Zwingli says, God wants from us his decree, his will alone, not our opinion. God the Lord cares more for obedience to his word than for all of our sacrifices and self-created church traditions. The greatest and correct honor to show to God is to obey His Word, to live according to His will, not according to our ordinances and best opinion. There was a time, my dear brothers and sisters, when Zwingli, Luther, Melanchthon, Oculampadius, and these various men of the Reformation were pressing and preaching what I just read to you without great effect, without very many joining that message. But they did not shrug their shoulders and say, well, I guess I'll just praise the Lord for the fatherhood of God and the brotherhood of men and drop these concerns about God's will and God's decree and God's word and risk breaking up the unity that is presently really everywhere. They continue to preach that the word of God as a sharp two-edged sword is going to divide between the soul and the spirit, the joint and the marrow, between false religion and the true. There'll be a sifting of that which is called Christendom as these men continue to preach these ideas, these truths. And eventually, eventually, a beautiful unity of some appreciable presence began to emerge, brothers and sisters, that was distinguished from that horror religion that was ruining souls. And revival began to take place. And the family of God began to rejoice together in the treasures 
of God's eternal truth. May the God, the Father of lights, with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning, he who was there and is still here and hasn't changed at all, may he send down the gift of revival, the gift of ears that hear these truths and desire to behold this kind of unity as is given to us in Psalm 133. Why don't you stand with me?